Welcome to the Well Restorer Wellness Podcast, a podcast with insightful interviews on how to live a joyful life despite health challenges, and it gives you actionable tips and strategies for your daily health and wellness journey. I'm your host, Fee. Thank you for listening in. Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the podcast. Joining me is Trishna Baradia. She works as a Spanish-English translator for a business information company. Trishna also volunteers with several multiple sclerosis charities, including the MS Society, Asian MS, and the MS Trust. She's an ambassador for the MS Society and the Action on Disability and Development Organization, ADD. Trishna is an active advocate for people with chronic illnesses and disabilities. She's here to share her experiences of living with multiple sclerosis. You'll hear us talk about MS, which is the acronym. According to MS Society, approximately 130,000 people are living with MS in the UK. It is a lifelong condition that affects the brain and nerves. So welcome, Trishna. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Can you tell us where you're from and uh, give us a background about your condition, please? Yeah, so I'm based in um, the United Kingdom, um, in Buckinghamshire, and I have multiple sclerosis amongst various other long-term conditions. Uh, Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition, so basically the immune system becomes faulty. And in the case of MS, it um, attacks the brain and the spinal cord, so healthy tissue in the brain and the spinal cord becomes damaged, and the nerves are affected as a result. And that means so your nerve, the nerve signals that go through your body, they're not able to travel through the body um, effectively, efficiently or properly. And this means that you can be affected by a whole range of different symptoms because your, your nervous system, basically, it's the control center of your body. And so symptoms can include things like mobility issues, Um, speech and swallowing difficulties, bladder and bowel issues, fatigue, pain, muscle spasms, um, lots and lots of different things. For me, my first symptoms were I lost the strength in both my hands. Um, At the time, it was put down to repetitive strain injury. Um, But then about three years later, I then um, lost the feeling down one side of my body and it was only it was then that kind of put that put me onto the the path to being diagnosed with ms and um, this was so i was diagnosed in 2008 so um i've been diagnosed now for 12 years and when i was given the diagnosis eventually we then looked back through my medical history and actually pinpointed that when i lost the strength in both my hands that was probably my first relapse And that's very common, actually, when people are eventually diagnosed with MS, because all the symptoms that I've I've mentioned can easily be put down to lots of other conditions. So sometimes it's about fitting the the jigsaw pieces um, together and coming up with the entire picture, which means that sometimes it can take a long time in order to get a definitive diagnosis. So what are your main symptoms? What are the main symptoms that you experience on a daily basis? So on a day-to-day basis, my current main symptoms are fatigue, 
and bladder issues and also some muscle spasms and pain. Um, but fatigue and the bladder issues are the two main things which on a day-to-day basis I, I have to deal with. The bladder issues, um, so I have what's known as incomplete emptying, which means that I go to the toilet and I feel like I'm done. And then about 10 minutes later, I realise actually I'm not done and I need to go again. Um, So I I have increased frequency. I tend to go to the toilet a lot. Um, And then with the fatigue, so I often describe fatigue as, so it's not usual tiredness it's overwhelming and it's both it affects you both mentally and physically so physically I often describe it as being it's like trying to wade through quicksand in um in wellies which are filled with lead it lit your whole body just slows down and it's an effort to literally do anything Um, And so that's the physical side. Mentally, when I'm fatigued, it's um, so there's a a term which is often used within the the MS world and it's cog fog or brain fog. Mm. Um, So it means that basically your your brain becomes really fuzzy and all your thinking, your thought, thought processes slow down and being able to do what your brain is telling you to do um, doesn't necessarily happen. So, you know, talking, for instance, I find it very hard to form the right words, to form complete sentences. Um, I, my friends sometimes describe it as I, I have a mental stutter. So I will be trying to find a word and I will literally stop mid-sentence and it will be, a, you know, it might be a very common word, but I can't, in that moment, I can't retrieve it from my brain because everything has slowed down in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something which, you know, I, I have to manage, like I said, on a day-to-day basis. I've had to make adjustments to my lifestyle, uh, to the way that I work. I've had to make adjustments to the way that I exercise. Uh, it's really, it's something which the vast majority of people with MS will at some point experience fatigue but it's also something which is still in my opinion is still very misunderstood because often you know if you go for a sleep it doesn't help and that can be very difficult to explain to people um, and also to explain to them that often it will come out of nowhere and so even though you do all these things to help manage it um, it might be that one day you're absolutely fine and you can do loads of things. And the next day you can hardly drag yourself out of bed. But then people will say, well, you're absolutely fine yesterday. What's wrong with you today? Hmm. Um, so it, that's on a daily basis. Those are the things which I, I have to deal with the most. Yeah. When it comes to fatigue, I know one of the challenges that I've heard people report is finding the balance between doing too much and too little. Um, and they struggle with pacing themselves. How do you manage your fatigue? So I've learned to ask for help. And that, I mean, that was very difficult for me to begin with because I've always been very independent and I like to do things myself and I don't like having to ask for help. Um, <laughs> 
but it's something which I've learned now that if I ask for help and I explain to people why I need the help, actually a lot of people are, are, are willing to you know, help me out and support me because they know in doing so, I'm then going to be able to do the things that I need to be able to do. So in my family, so I live with my parents and my younger sister, um, we all help each other out. So if my mum is seeing that I'm having a, a really tough day, you know, she'll help me with cooking and laundry. And, you know, I, my mum and dad particularly will often take me to places if I'm going to speak at a conference, for example, because they know that if I have to go, drive there myself, chances are I'll be tired by the time I get there. And then I have to go on stage and give a speech, which, mm. you know, fatigued, then that actually, uh, that call then causes me anxiety because then I'm thinking, well, am I going to be able to be coherent? Will people understand me? Am I going to forget my words on stage? And that in itself uses up energy. So you have to, you have to be able to manage, you know, manage, like you said, that balance. Mm. Um, Another thing that I've done is I've adjusted my working hours. So I have flexible working hours and I'm able to work when I'm at my most productive. And I'm very lucky with that because my employers have been very understanding um, and they've made that adjustment. I also work from home as well, again, so that I'm not expending energy doing a daily commute. All of those things, you know, go towards helping helping you manage the fatigue on a, on a day-to-day basis. Having said that, you're always learning. Um, there are times when I think, oh, I'll be okay. And I take on lots and lots of things and then, you know, get to the end of it. And then I'm absolutely exhausted. He's <laughs> recovering. And then I think to myself, okay, Trishna, actually that wasn't such a good idea. And maybe you did take on a little bit too much. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you're always learning. And, things also change with time as well mm. so ms now isn't what it was isn't what it was um 12 years ago when i was first diagnosed it's mm-hmm. you know things have progressed and i've grown older as well you know mm. i was just at the age of 28 i'm now you know i'm now 40 heading towards 41 And generally there are things which with age, you know, you do get more tired. There are other things which, you know, you have to deal with as you grow older. And so what you're having to deal with along with your condition, that also changes. And that has to be taken into consideration when you're trying to find that, that balance. Yeah. Yeah. sounds like there's a lot of planning around activities. Your day-to-day life um, has to be planned yeah, I use Google. I use um, Google Calendar for literally everything in my life. <laughs> it's <laughs> coordinated. Um, I can put things here, there, and everywhere. And you know, even even talking to friends on the telephone mm. into my diary. Um, because if I know, for example, I'm going to have a catch up with a friend, and it's going to take, you know, potentially it's going to take an hour, an hour and a half. Mm. I'm going to expend energy so that has to go into my diary because then I know that potentially I'll either have to rest or I won't be able to do things which are going to be too taxing afterwards um and the same thing you know 
things like family weddings, friends' weddings, you know, social get-togethers, all those kinds of things which, yes, go into people's diaries, but don't necessarily don't necessarily require preparation or recovery time for most people. For somebody like me, I have to plan. So if I know that, you know, I'm going to, let's just, for example, say I'm going to a cousin's wedding um, on a Saturday, I know that I can't do anything on the Friday night and Sunday will be spent recovering. So in my diary, I know that I have to block out three days rather than only one and to allow you more time for recovery yeah and also for preparation because if I was to be doing something say the day before which would expend a lot of energy then I'm not going to be able to enjoy the wedding or maybe I may not even be able to you know make it to the wedding at all because I'm just too fatigued and I'm really not feeling great Mm. um so it's about plan it is about planning and preparation and making sure you have enough recovery time um and that requires um you know i often say that i i plan my life with military precision now and i do and that's the way i know that i need need it to be in order to manage mm. and from my experience of working with individuals with ms I know that one of the symptoms that can often be overlooked is the mood changes. Um, and I know that that occurs due to the impairment of the areas of the brain that control emotion. Can you relate to some of this or do you know of, uh, of, of individuals that might experience mood changes as a direct result um, of the conditions? Um, yeah. So I have uh, come across some, um, some people on social media who I'm connected with, who have experienced, um, have experienced that. It's not um, what I would say one of the more common um, symptoms. What you tend to, what I, in my experience, I found to be more common is mood changes associated with um, trying to deal with the condition itself. I see. Um, so things like anxiety, depression, um, frustration, anger, all of those things tend to go hand in hand with, you know, having to try and cope with whatever it is that the condition throws at you. And that for me, in my experience has been more common than the direct changes as a result of lesions that are in the the various parts of the brain. I see. So, so things like maybe uh, loss of independence sometimes can yeah. make people sad, and you know the fatigue can make you irritable. Um, yeah, 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 and also, um, so a big problem within MS um, and many other sort of disabling conditions is isolation. Right. Uh, I mean, the MS Society recently um, released a report about loneliness. And it found that, you know, the majority of people with MS have experienced loneliness or considered themselves to be lonely at some point. And that can be due to either the actual nature of the condition in that if you have disabling symptoms and you can't leave home or go too far from home, mm. it can also be 
due to losing friends because people don't want to make that little bit of extra effort to be more inclusive. Um, so, for example, I mean, I I rarely venture when I'm socialising now. I rarely venture um, outside of my local area just because it's not really manageable for me. Um, so, if I have, for example, friends who live in London or in the other end of the country, let's just say Manchester, um, I rarely get to see them now unless they come to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can be very isolating. There's also, you know, isolation, which is um, linked to stigma and prejudice. I'm Asian. I have an Asian heritage. And within the Asian community, disability and chronic illness and serious illness is still you know it's very much swept under the carpet people don't talk about it i i'm quite unusual in that i've been very very public about my diagnosis but i know lots of people who haven't told their extended family or the community that they have ms or another condition uh, because of the prejudice and the stigma that's attached to it so things like you know how are you going to get married if you've got this long-term condition are you going to pass it on to your children mm-hmm. how are you able to work how are you going to be able to you know actually lead a positive life all of these sort of myths are still circulating within you know within some communities mm. And that's one of the reasons why actually I've been very public because I want to be able to dispel these myths and say, hey, look, actually, with the right support, which we need from the community, then you can still do things, even if you have a, you know, a long term condition or a disability, things are still very much possible. Absolutely. I agree. I think um, just more of the education and awareness will help to change mindsets. Uh, But that needs a collective effort. Exactly. And I think it also needs an effort from within the community as well, because Mm. it's about trying to understand where do those, where does the mindset come from? How is it rooted and where is it rooted? And I think you have to be within the community to understand that in order to understand the best ways of then trying to change those mindsets. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that your family has played a significant role as well in helping you manage. Would you like to share more about that? Yeah, so my family, um, they, they've been amazing. <laughs> I count myself very, very lucky. Uh, so I live, as I said, with um, my parents and my younger sister. Uh, my twin sister, my identical twin sister, um, is married she lives away from home with her with her her new daughter um and at home so I obviously I have MS and I also live with several other chronic conditions my younger sister has ulcerative colitis um which is another autoimmune condition it's an inflammatory bowel disease um and she's also experienced mental health issues due to a car accident that she had um quite a few years ago um and so my parents particularly had become were very much the rocks in the family 
when it comes to physical, emotional, and also mental support. Um, they help me on a, you know, on a day-to-day basis in terms of doing a lot of the things which I would otherwise have the energy to do. So things like food shopping, um, chores around the house, um, and things like that. My, both of them, you know, often accompany me when I'm traveling to speak at conferences and events and, and things like that as part of my advocacy work. Uh, so that they can help support me because I find traveling absolutely exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, often my mum or dad will come with me um, in order to support me in that. Um, and also, you know, just things like taking me to medical appointments. You know, I, like I said, I live in Buckinghamshire, but all of my care for the conditions that I have are all based in London. So, that can take, depending on which hospital it is, it can take, you know, about two and a half hours to get there, two and a half hours to get back. Then, you know, you're waiting at the hospital to be seen. Quite easily, it's a whole day. The whole day, yes. Yeah. So, and it'll be my mum or dad who does that for me and drives me there and drives me back and supports me within the within the appointment itself. Um to, to make sure that, you know, I've not forgotten anything, that I've managed to write everything down. Um, That's and amazing. Second pair of ears um, as well. That's so amazing. They've been, they've been brilliant. And, you know, they, you do it because you, you, it's your family. Um, I know that this isn't, it's not how I envisaged my life would be. I mean, I'm 40 now and I didn't envisage that I'd be, you know, living with my parents um, at this, at this age. I didn't envisage that I would be where I am in my career at this age. Um, But at the same time, and my parents didn't necessarily envisage that I, their grown up daughters would still be living with them. Um, But we've, Yes, it can be difficult because at the end of the day, your dy- the dynamics change. You relate, the relationship changes um, when a member of your family becomes your primary caregiver. But we're also, we've also sort of looked at the positives as well, like the fact that, you know, when I'm traveling and I have to take one of my parents with me, yes, it was it felt um, it felt difficult in a way because I've always been very independent. And so I felt as though, oh gosh, some of my independence is being eroded. But at the mm. same time, I've got to spend all this time with my parents, which, you know, which is, is great. You know, yes. they're, they're not going to be around forever. And I probably spent, in fact, I know I've spent much more time with them because of my MS than I w- would have done if I didn't have MS. Mm. And for that, I'm thankful because that's, those are, you know, those are memories made. It's time that, you know, I, I will always have had with them. So you have to, exactly. you have to have the positives. I guess you've answered my question because I was going to say that sometimes people um, express to me um, the guilt, the feelings of guilt um, towards the caregiver because 
especially when you have a parent that's supporting you and you feel as though the table should be turned, you should be supporting them. Um, but you've just said it's a change of mindset. So the way you've changed your mindset and reframed that um, to a positive um, sort of thought, you, so in, instead of um, saying, instead of looking at it as a negative way, you were saying, well, this is time I get to spend with my parents. It's more, it's the appreciation you have for them, which yeah. then, yeah, makes you feel a bit better about it. Yeah. And actually, so that was something that in the beginning I did really struggle with that guilt Mm. Um, coming from an Asian family where it's very much the dumb thing that when your parents become older, the children take care of them. I, I did feel very guilty and it was again, one of the, so it was one of the reasons why I became um, so heavily involved in Asian MS because all the other support groups that I was part of, um, there weren't very many, if any, Asians in there. And they didn't, they didn't understand that guilt. There's a cultural element there. You know, you, you grow up thinking that when my parents become old, I will be the one to look after them. Mm-hmm. It's Thing which you know within the Asian community it's something which is a it's a given you just grow up thinking that um and to have that taken away in certain certain respects and have that that role rever- re- role reversal um was something which I found I could only really get an understanding Um, from other Asians who were going through a similar thing Mm -hmm. because yeah like I said and there's lots of there's been lots of cultural things which I think again it's been very important to be able to share it those you know those worries those anxieties those concerns with other people who are from you know the the Asian community Mm -hmm. um, because when you're talking about things that have a cultural aspect to it, I just didn't find that I was getting the understanding from, you know, other people from outside the Asian community because they just didn't get it. Sure. Yeah. And, and so with regards, because I also know that you are involved with influencing policy so you, what it's one of the uh, the challenges faced by people with disabilities is remaining in employment, yeah. and I know that many people, well, people don't really enjoy work, do they? But it's a fundamental aspect of our lives. <laughs> so aside from financial gains, it improves our social well-being and makes us feel independent. It makes us feel valued because we're contributing to the society, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that you've spoken to Parliament. Uh, about issues faced by people living with MS who are in employment. What do you think are some of the main issues uh, faced by people living with MS whilst working? Um, So I think some of the main issues are surrounding, first of all, disclosure. A lot of people with MS are scared of telling their employers that they have a long-term condition because they're scared of discrimination. Um, 
Now, MS is a named condition under the Equality Act. So as soon as you're diagnosed with MS, you're protected under the Equality Act. However, the Equality Act can also be quite vague, to be honest. <laughs> um, a lot of there are a lot of employers who, you know, who are able to get around things um, if they really, really want to. And so there are people who I, who I even personally know who have been discriminated against, who haven't been treated fairly. Um, and at the moment, there is so much emphasis on the term reasonable adjustments. It's like what is considered to be reasonable and what somebody with a disability or a chronic illness considers to be reasonable might not be what an employer considers to be reasonable and sometimes there's that clash there um a lot of people with disabilities with chronic illnesses you're right do want to work because there is so much more it's you know not only because of the financial benefits but because yes because of the social benefits and it keeps your mind and your brain working it gives you a sense of purpose uh it's funny because in again in this current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic there's been a huge movement towards remote working listening to what people are discussing within patient communities there's actually been quite a lot of resentment in a way because so many people have previously asked their employers if they could, for example, work from home because it would make their life easier with their particular disability or their particular condition. And lots of employers have turned around and said, no, we're not set up for it. We can't do it. it you know, you can't do it in this particular role, et cetera, et cetera. And now suddenly everybody's working from home. And suddenly it's, you know, it's not as much of an issue and the technology is available. It's made available. Exactly. And so there has been a kind of an undercurrent of, um, yeah, what I would call a bit of resentment for patient communities who were saying, well, we've been asking for this for a long time. And now suddenly, because it affects everybody, now it's being made available. I just hope that something you know that one of the things that comes out of this pandemic is that generally the world remains a more accessible place whether that's to do with remote working and access to technology whether it's to do with telemedicine um, and access to better health care because the technology is in place so that it doesn't matter if you don't live in a large city with a large research hospital, you can still access that healthcare if you want to, and because the technology is available via sort of telemedicine, remote appointments, and things like that. I hope that you know. I read an absolutely wonderful article um, about how the world has been opened up in many ways to lots of people with chronic illness and disability who, for example, can't travel or haven't been able to travel for many years. And now, so, you know, there's a, um, there's a scheme which is opening up virtual access to museums. Oh, really? And, yeah, and I read that there's this, this um, person who hasn't been able to leave their house 
for several years because of their um, their disability. And in the past few weeks, has managed to look around the Louvre in Paris and the Rijksmuseum in, oh, wow. in the Netherlands. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and, and the same. So a lot of um, a lot of plays and musicals and concerts are being streamed online, mm. made available again for everyone. And you know, I love going to the theatre, but in order for me to go to the theatre in the West End. It's it's a huge it's a military operation to plan it. <laughs> you say military operation. It is. Um, so <laughs> I have to make sure I'm not doing anything during the day because otherwise I'll be too tired by the time I get there. I have to plan, you know, my journey, where I'm going to be sitting, and all of that. I have to make sure I'm not doing something else the following day. I have to make sure that there is somebody, um, either a friend or you know my parents or somebody who is able to drive me there and back. Um, but, you know, recently, you know, I watched Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, oh. which was being streamed Must online. Must good. Phantom of the Opera being streamed online. They've got concerts being streamed. Um, and again, you know, I read in this article that there was somebody who hadn't been able to see their favourite band in concert for years and now they've been able to do it because they, they, they streamed an online concert because during the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you've obviously, you, you can't hold physical concerts. Mm. Um, it's amazing, those, isn't it? It's just amazing yeah. that such a change, a small change. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just allows access for other people that wouldn't have had that access at all and just brings them that joy, that, that yeah. fulfillment with life. Yeah. I, I just, I really hope that some of these initiatives stay in place so that the world continues to be accessible for so many more people. Mm, mm. Um, because otherwise, you know, you do, you do miss out and, you know, you, you're not able to do everything that you want to be able to do. And with the technology that we have these days, I think there's so much more that could be made available i think most companies will agree to that yeah Yeah. so um yeah no it's i definitely i hope that that's something which is good that comes out of this whole absolutely awful situation Mm. um that we do we do make the world accessible and we have a there is more empathy for what people with chronic illness and disability go through because even in terms of isolation when you have chronic illness um and or a disability isolation can be a real issue um you lose friends um you stop being asked to to places because you know for example you, after a while sometimes people think to stop thinking about whether uh, the restaurant that they've chosen is it wheelchair accessible because there is somebody in the party who has a wheelchair mm. um, and very and this is something which i've spoken about lots with different patient communities people say slowly the invitations start drying up and you know you end up relying more and more on technology and social media and social media connections but that doesn't it doesn't 
substitute for that face-to-face interaction for being able to go out of the house Mm. and I think with the lockdown that we've had where people are being told to stay at home that's something which people with chronic illness and disabilities we've experienced you know multiple times during our life with our Mm. whether it's to do with because of accessibility or whether it's to do with generally poor health so you're not able to go out you know when I was first diagnosed um during the winter time you know I carried on doing things you know how I was doing because I was just I'm going to carry on living how I want to live um and I you know during the winter time I would still go to for example Christmas parties um I would still be working in the office and things like that and I was just, I was picking up everything that was going around. And every time I pick something up, whereas it might take somebody without a chronic illness, you know, say a week to recover, it was taking me two months. And during that period, I was stuck at home. And, you know, now during the winter time, (laughs) I don't go to Christmas party. I don't go to large social gatherings. I do tend to what I call I go into hibernation mode and I do tend to stay at home. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, this this Christmas just gone, I think I went through it was a period of about six weeks altogether when actually I didn't I didn't leave home. Mm. Uh, and. People with chronic illness and disabilities, we we often end up doing that. And so in a way we've been very well placed to cope with the the sort of the 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 lockdown and the whole being told no you have to stay at home no you shouldn't be going out and you know large gatherings are banned and we're going to you know stop concerts and and things like that we we've had those experiences before because (laughs) it's not new to you yeah yeah what you mentioned reasonable adjustments earlier what yeah. reasonable adjustments can people ask from their employer just to help them manage at work what, so what's an example much, yeah so it very much depends on obviously the situation and the type of job that you're doing mm-hmm. so the job i do is very much it's a desk job so you know reasonable adjustments can be anything from you know when i was working in the office um, could have been anything from making sure I have a desk which is close to a bathroom. Um, if I if somebody was to have mobility problems, then you know make sure that there is a lift um, that the building is accessible. If there isn't, then you know have or if you have mobility issues but you're not in a wheelchair and you can't manage stairs very well, then ask for a desk on the ground floor. Um, flexible working hours, being able to work from home. Um, if you have pro- if you have dexterity um, problems, then you can ask for things like dictation software, so that you don't have to type so much. Um, it's a whole mm. variety of different and frequent things. rest breaks as well. Frequent you rest say. Break, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about how. So I I like to think of it as companies should be thinking about not 
they shouldn't be seeing it as an inconvenience. They should be seeing it as how do we get the best out of our employees? And that's mm. something which, regardless of somebody, if somebody has a long-term condition or disability, they should always be thinking about that. You know, how do we get the best out of our employees? Um, so if for one person that means giving them a desk which is close to a bathroom or giving them free, more frequent rest breaks or allowing them to work from home for you know a couple of days a week then that's just in their unique case that's what they have to do mm. for somebody else you know it might be it might be something different but it, it's about you know, making sure that everyone is being as productive as possible and is able mm. to, get, you know, the best that they can, can for, the, for the company. Yeah, and, and also if you have an occupational, if they do have an occupational health um, department, yeah. it's worth speaking to them first just to get the opinions. Yeah, that yeah. That could help. Yeah, and also, so, and this is key, um, employers aren't... Um, obliged to make reasonable adjustments if they don't know that somebody has a long-term condition or disability. So in order for you to ask for reasonable adjustments, you need to have disclosed to your employer the fact that, you know, so for in my, in my case, I need to have disclosed that I have MS. Um, and have they then, made accommodations to your, have yes, your employer made yes. accommodations? Okay. Yeah, so um, I it's that's um, the reason why I now work from home, um, and I also have flexible working hours. That's to help manage my fatigue. And I mean, for me, actually, disclosure wasn't it, disclosure wasn't a big thing for me because they already knew that something was something wasn't quite right because I was going for hospital appointments, mm-hmm. and actually. For me, discrimination never crossed my mind. I, uh, that Maybe that's naivety. Um, I also, it's partly probably because I had a very, very good relationship with my employer anyway. I'd been already working for them for four years. So I built up some very, very good personal relationships within the company. And it was never a question for me that once I got the diagnosis, whatever it was, it was never a do I tell them or not for me it was always yeah of course I would tell them because actually they cared about what was happening with me Mm. um I know I know people um not everyone is in that situation uh and especially if you're starting a new job or you haven't been in a job for very long uh it can it can be difficult and there can be a dilemma there so I do count myself lucky and I'm still in that same job. Uh, I, you know, I've been working there now since gosh, 2000 and 2004. It's oh, wow. uh, a long time. Very long, a very long time. <laughs> the reasons why, you know, I, I, I still work there. I mean, aside from the fact that I enjoy the work and everything is because they have been very good and very understanding and they have made people adjustments so it works two ways mm. as well in exchange they you know they've got a an employee who's been very loyal to the company um and you know at, at any time a company has to bring in 
a new employee, they have to spend money on training and exactly. things like that. You know? So it, it works two ways mm. as well. It's a win-win you know? for both. Exactly. Mm. But the only, only way that that can really happen is if there's that open dialogue, you need the right legal frameworks in place. And also you need, there, there needs to be understanding as well. There needs to be empathy and that idea, like I said, that everybody could potentially be a patient at some point in their lives. So if you have, um, if you happen to be somebody who doesn't have a chronic illness and some, you, you know, one of your employees comes to you and says, well, I would like reasonable adjustments and you refuse, you know, a year, two years down the line, it could be you in that position. Mm, that's true. Um, you know, I do, I do think it's about having that understanding and that empathy. And like I said, knowing that it could be, it could be anyone, anyone could find themselves in that in a situation where they need to ask for reasonable adjustments. Mm. Um, How do you balance all your responsibilities as an advocate, a family member, work life? <laughs> How do you make sure that you're not developing burnout? Um, so a lot of planning, um, my mum and dad's support is just, I mean, it's just incredible and it, it really, really helps. Mm. Uh, I often say that, you know, when I've been, if I've been working all day and then I've headed into London because I'm speaking at some event or something and then I come home and I'm really tired and if it wasn't for the fact that my mum actually makes me something to eat, I would go to bed without eating. Without eating. Wow. Yeah, because actually my tiredness is, that's the biggest priority right at that moment. Mm, not food. <laughs> not food, exactly. Um, and yeah, and just also the the, the moral support. The, I've learnt, I've learnt to get rid of what I would call the um the toxic um and negative uh vibes energy um in you know and we all we've all we all have that in our lives we all have people in our lives who actually drain you Mm. you energy zappers yes yeah and you know it gets to a point where when you're living with you know something like ms you don't have that energy to give and to allow somebody to drain that energy from you so you know i make sure that the people who are in my life are people who are who are very positive who understand who you know don't mind if i have to cancel on them at the last minute because I'm not feeling too great um they're people who support me they're people who I can learn from um in what I've been what I've done I've met some you know fabulous people people who have become really good friends people who've become mentors um people who've really supported me in you know in various aspects of of my life Mm. and you know, I often say that MS has turned me into the person that I've always wanted to be. I'm doing things that I've always wanted to do. I've had some amazing opportunities. 
directly as a result of the advocacy work that I'm doing. You know, I've spoken at 10 Downing Street. I've been to 10 Downing Street twice. Um, okay. I've ministers i've met health secretaries i've been to parliament i've done strictly come dancing Um, i know (laughs) yeah and so you know i've traveled to you know loads of places that i would never have have had the opportunity to go to you know i I spoke at a a conference in bucharest i've been Um, to i've been to you know places where i wouldn't go on holiday because you know they're not just they've just never been on my radar but I've had that opportunity through the advocacy work and so I've been able to meet people from literally all over the place um so it's allowed you to step out of your comfort exactly Mm. and funnily enough so growing up I was always really really shy were you I wouldn't have thought (laughs) (laughs) but when I was at school I I wouldn't put my hand up in class to answer a question, even if I knew the answer, because I would be I wouldn't want to be talking in front of somebody, and I'd be so scared. Of, what if actually I'm not right and I've got the answer wrong? And you know, I I lacked so much confidence, even to the point where, so if I'd been walking in town and I saw somebody that I knew. I would cross over the road because I'd be scared <laughs> to talk. And, you know, and I think going from that to, you know, I've danced on television in front of millions of people. You know, I do radio interviews. I've spoken, you know, my biggest live um, event when I've been speaking at conferences and things was it was an event where there was more than 700 people in the audience. Um, I think about who I was when I was, you know, when I was at school to what I'm doing now. And if somebody had said to me at the age of, you know, 15, that this is what you will be doing, you know, in, in your 30, in your 30s, 40s, I would have been, I wouldn't have, I just wouldn't have believed them. It's been a blessing in disguise. Exactly. And it's because I have been, I have stepped out of my comfort zone. I think when you when you have a passion and you feel that something needs to be said, then it makes you step out of that comfort zone. And I learned early on in, in my advocacy that one of the most effective ways to get your point across was to engage with people. Mm-hmm. And that meant talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, and it now, funnily enough, I mean, some of the things that I enjoy the most is speaking at live events because I love that interaction and really enjoy it. So in 2015, you took part on the first episode of the people's strictly come dancing for comic relief. I watched one of the videos (laughs) in which you were dancing. It was so good. I really like, I really liked your routine. What did you enjoy the most about your experience? Oh gosh. Oh, um, you know what? I just, everything Mm. even days when I you know there were some days and it was literally we were doing 17 18 hour days how did you manage well again it was through the understanding of the production crew the understanding of my professional dance partner who was Aliash Skornianitz who if people watch Strictly Come Dancing they will know who Aliash is he's a you know he's been on the show for for many years now 
Um, it was through the support of the family, through the support of the other um, of the other participants as well, because they became my family on set. They were the ones who were looking out for me because you know my my mum and dad weren't able to come when we were filming when we were doing you know they were able to come to the actual studio record and they came to some of my rehearsals and things which they were able to watch. But when we were you know filming all the extra bits, mm-hmm. you know weren't able to come with me so it was very much the production crew and the other participants and the other dancers they became my family and they were the ones who made sure that I was able to get enough rest that I did have somewhere that I could go that I was eating properly um that we weren't packing in too much during the day um how long did it take you to learn the routine um so in terms of, so we had about six or seven weeks of dance training. Right. The actual show, which was four episodes altogether, from start to finish, it took four months to, to film and produce and mm-hmm. everything. Um, and during that time, I mean, I was still working full time because I couldn't just ask my boss for four months off work. <laughs> so I'm going to make a television show now. Um, so <laughs> full time I was still managing my MS we were filming and we were also dance training so with the dance training sometimes it was up to 20 hours a week um so but it was I think the 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 key thing was is that for me it was a dream come true you know I'm a huge fan of the show never in a million years would I have ever have thought I'd have the opportunity to go on Strictly because I'm not a celebrity. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so the fact that I had the, this opportunity and it was, yeah, quite literally, it was a dream come true. Did you put yourself um, up for it or were you, did someone no, so nominate it was, it was my sister. It was my younger uh, sister, who, um, the one with, um, with inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. So she was who nominated me. She saw that they were looking um, for nominations and they were looking for people who had overcome adversity in their life, people who'd done, you know, lots to help the community, who'd given back. Um, and she thought Aww. to herself, oh my gosh, Tristan would absolutely just love to do this. <laughs> um, and yeah, so they had over 11,000 nominations, but they chose six people. So Amazing. I it was, you know, it was that golden ticket. It was you know, it was very much, it was like winning the lottery. <laughs> Put you um, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, yeah, the crucial thing was, is that I I enjoyed it so much. It was really, really tough. Mm. Every single day, I I was pinching myself thinking, oh my gosh, is this real? Am I actually here? Am I, you know, am I dancing with these professional dancers? Am I meeting, you know, Craig Revel Horwood and, you know, and Tess Daly and Claudia Winkleman? I mean, I remember the first time that I met Claudia Winkleman. So I had, um, we were doing promotion for the, for the show and we'd gone on the one show and I was waiting for, um, I was waiting for my, the, the taxi to take me home. And I was waiting with one of the professional dancers, Ian Waite. And Claudia had been, um, she had been filming something inside the BBC television um, centre. And she'd come out and she said, oh, hi, Ian, fancy bumping into you. 
um, and then looked at me and she said, oh my God, you're Trishna. She said, I've read all about you. I've seen all the footage and, and things. <laughs> She'd been briefed and things. I thought, I was stood there thinking, oh my gosh, Claudia Winkleman knows me. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was just, yeah, having those opportunities. I mean, and actually on that day, um, when we were promoting on the one show, um, so when I arrived there, I, I texted one of the other participants who'd already got there, and I said, "What's going on in the, here? Because there's loads of teen, there's loads of girls like waiting outside because it was in the same complex where the um, where BBC Radio One and Radio One Extra is is broadcast." And um, and she said, "Oh, I asked one of them. Apparently, the Backstreet Boys are in the building." No way. Oh my gosh <laughs> no way <laughs> I, you know I was a huge fan of the Backstreet Boys I went to see them in concert when I was a teenager I think I like was that. a fan of them when I was young as well <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh I'm going to be in the same building as the Backstreet Boys now that in itself I was just like oh you know this is amazing as I walked into the building the Backstreet Boys were just walking out and we oh, bumped into in the reception and I was just like oh my gosh um and I mean they were wonderful and I just I must have looked like like just completely. did you speak to them did you speak to one of yes, them I speak, oh. yes I did I spoke to them and I said look I you know I'm here I'm promoting an, another tv show I'm I, I can't remember exactly what I said but I said please can we have a photo and then <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then being who I who I am, and completely lost my head. Um, <laughs> phone, um, and I think it was it was Kevin who said, "Would you like me to take us? Take should we take a selfie here? Give me your phone because you could see that I was obviously struggling." <laughs> and, the yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, yeah, I've got a photo with them with a selfie taken by by Kevin. <laughs> Wow, that must have been an amazing experience. <laughs> it was, it yeah. was, and it was so funny. So I got, I got upstairs afterwards, um, and you know, all the rest of the the professional dancers from Strictly were there. The rest of the participants. I walked in. I said, "I just met the Backstreet Boys. Nothing's." After <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the rest of the evening, all they heard was Trisha's met the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah, it was a good experience. So we're yeah. coming to a close now, Trishna. What three tips would you advise or suggest people to consider to help them feel and stay well despite your conditions? So I think the first thing would be uh, to listen to your body um, and make adjustments, be flexible. Uh, Yes, you might be able to continue doing things that you've always done, but you might have to make adaptations, you know. So in terms of exercise, for instance, I used to be a, well, I played league hockey for many years after my diagnosis, but it got to a point where actually I couldn't manage. So I had to look for something else. And that's when I really got into into dancing. Um, Another thing would be be kind to yourself. Um, when you're diagnosed, you will go through all kinds of emotions. There is no right or wrong. 
Um, just work through things at your own pace. Work through things in a way that is good for you. Yes, it's good to share experiences with other people, but don't feel like you have to do exactly what they've done. I often say share experiences and take inspiration, but you have to carve your own path and you have to, you have to lead your own journey because everyone is different. And the other thing would be, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, there's no shame in asking for help. Actually, it can be very liberating because asking for help can enable you to live the life that you want to live. It's not about losing your independence. It's about you may need to ask for help in order to gain independence. Um, so, you know, a key example would be if within MS is if you're starting to have um, mobility difficulties, then, you know, you might need to use a walking aid or you might need to use a wheelchair in order so that you're not confined to your home. Um, so asking for help, having that kind of support, whether it's physical support, mental support or emotional support can be liberating and can enable you to continue to, to be independent. Thank you for those tips, um, Trishna. And lastly, what is your go-to pick-me-up, your guilty pleasure? My go-to pick-me-up has to be dancing. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, when I'm dancing, I just, I lose myself in the music. It makes me so happy. Um, like I said, I'd always been a hockey player. Hockey was my life. And I didn't think I would ever find something which filled me with as much joy and pleasure as being on a hockey pitch. And yes, dancing is different, but it's given me a whole load of different kind of passion and joy. Um, and, you know, it, yeah, I just, when I'm doing my dance classes and my Zumba classes, I'm just, I'm just so happy. Mm. And that's what, I think that's what's important. You know, people say to me, oh, I can't dance or, you know, I have a disability. That means I can't dance. Actually, everyone can dance because mm. about making it what you want to make it. It is no right or wrong. It's creative. If you can, if you enjoy music, um, then you can be in a wheelchair and you can be dancing. You know, I know somebody who's an amputee and dances um i've heard know, of wheelchair um dancing classes as well i've seen some on youtube yes yeah so i'm actually i'm a patron for um paradance uk okay um, which is the national body for paradance um and give one of the reasons i became a patron for paradance uk was because i believe that everyone has the ability to dance it's about how do you adapt how are you flexible and you make it what you want to make it. Um, and that's the beauty. It's one of the very few forms of truly inclusive exercise where you can have people of all different abilities, all different age, different fitness levels, and they can all be doing the same class. Um, and that for me, I think is a, is a wonderful thing. Oh, well, Trisha, thank you. Trishna, thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you for the work you're doing to improve the lives of people with chronic invisible illnesses and disabilities. I hope that someone listening in is inspired to become an advocate 
just like you. Where can people find you if they wanted to know more about the work that you're doing? So I'm on social media. Um, on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Trishna Baradia 2015. And on Twitter and, and, and Instagram, my handle is at Trishna Baradia. So very easy. That's great. Thank you so much. And you take Thank care you of yourself. Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you've learned something. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate it, and review it on iTunes, as this can help others with health challenges find it. If you would like to hear more from me, follow my Instagram page at World Restorer. You can find me on Facebook and visit the website www.wellrestorer.co.uk. And remember, guys, invest in your health. Talk to you soon.